Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPEGAN. I'm Jason Silverman, and I am joined today by my co-host that everyone loves the laugh of the most, Tamara Hajat from Cincinnati Children's. How are you? How are you, Tamara? Good. Hello, everyone. <laughs> so, Tamara, we know that you have been on this, I don't know, can we call it like a vision quest, a life quest to find new hobbies, to keep yourself challenged, to keep yourself entertained. We went through roller skating mm-hmm. and... Uh, Knitting? No. Piano. Piano. Yes. Yes. Spanish. Spanish. Uh, and of course, uh, improv. Mm-hmm. But that was like more than three months. That was like a year and a half. Right. Yeah. That yeah. that, was, that yeah. took dedication. So mm-hmm. so <laughs> what's on the slate now? Like, are, are do you have any new hobbies that are either you've started or you're considering? So I'm thinking either kickboxing. Like Muay Thai, yeah, or um, weightlifting. Okay, so, so I've so, noticed my joints are a little bit more stiff, and I can't do yoga because I just fall asleep. I'm like, you're making me lay on the ground and not like snore and fall asleep. <laughs> you want me to actually stand up and then do something? <laughs> oh my goodness! So you've got to be active and pushed. So I get that. I I have yeah. seen Muay Thai kickboxing in Thailand and man that is rough so yeah. hopefully they start you off at a really junior level if that's yeah, something that you're going to take that's the plan to start off at junior level and to stay at a junior level <laughs> okay that's that's a good idea that's a good You're idea not now, planning. Are, are, do you have strong inklings either way leaning towards muay thai or leaning towards weightlifting so i did muay thai for a month like about a few years ago and I was, I liked it, but then I lost interest in it after a month. So I might do weightlifting if I find a good trainer. So I don't know. We'll see. All right. So if any of our listeners want to weigh in on this and give Tamara uh, some incentive to go one way or the other, do you want her to be the next Muay Thai kickboxing champion of the world? Or do you want her to be really, really jacked? Maybe one of yeah. those people who, you know, grunts and lifts 400 pounds <laughs> above their head and then drops the weight with a big bang and yeah. walks away. Um, so you can add us on Twitter. Let us know which you want her to, to do next. Okay. Maybe I'll do a poll too. Yes. Okay. So watch out for the poll. What What should Tamara's next hobby be? <laughs> Okay. You know what inspired me? Have you watched Physical 100 on uh, Netflix? I have not. No. Yeah. If you just, you'll understand why. It's okay. like very strong people that are very athletic and muscular. And I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. All right. That, that's not me, but uh, more power to you tomorrow. <laughs> All right. So before we talk about today's episode, some housekeeping business, we are going to be doing another PSGI chat about the topic that we're sharing today, right, tomorrow? Correct. Correct. So that's going to be the Thursday after, which is going to be March 2nd. And we're going to have the very amazing Dr. Neha Santucci on the chat. And we're going to have the very great Dr. Miranda Van Tilbert on the chat as well. So be sure to join. The last chat was great. A lot of people joined and 
contributed in on their thoughts. We want you to join. We want you to let us know what you think, answer the questions, ask questions. It's great and learn from it. Sounds great. So for today's topic, we wanted to dig into a really common presentation, but from a different perspective. We've all dealt with kids with functional abdominal pain. It's so common. And while we will talk to our patients and their families about functional abdominal pain being a disorder of brain-gut interaction, we wanted to talk about this condition from that cognitive perspective, sort of from the other side for a change, and to discuss issues of pain perception, pain coping, maladaptive responses to pain. We also wanted to discuss some research-informed behavioral interventions that can help children with functional abdominal pain. And we were so lucky to be able to sit down with Dr. Miranda Van Tilburg at the last NASPGAN annual meeting to cover this topic. Yeah, we did it in person, which was great for anyone that is on Twitter. You know that Dr. Van Tilleberg does not need introduction. She is verified on Twitter, which is amazing. She's a psychologist and researcher who has worked extensively on the behavioral explanations for and treatment of functional GI disorders including work supported by the NIH and the Rome Foundation. She's currently a professor in the Department of Medicine at Marshall Health in Huntington, West Virginia, and was recently named the chair of the Ethics Committee at NASPGAM. How amazing is that? She wears many hats, which is amazing. Yeah, it was great that she could take the time to sit down with us at NASPGAM and have this conversation, and we can't wait to share it with you. Yes, so... On to the show. On to the show. So close. So close. So welcome, Dr. Von Tolbo, to our podcast. We are excited to have you here. We've been uh, wanting to have you for a long, long time. This is such a great topic to talk about. Welcome. I'm very excited to be here and to talk about my favorite topic. <laughs> but before we start, we have a couple of questions just to get to know you and for our audience to get to know you. So this is one of the kind of challenging questions that we usually have. <laughs> In one sentence, how would you describe yourself to our audience? In one sentence? <laughs> if you can. If you can, that's okay. I wear many different hats, but I guess people will know me best as a health psychologist who does research in functional abdominal pain. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you are one of the most accomplished health psychologists in functional abdominal pain. So we're honored to have you here today. Yeah. Well, it, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being our guest. Now, we have a bit of a newer question for our guests. We've been asking people what they do out of, for interest in your know, movies and books and things like that. But as the world is kind of opening up a little bit, people are more interested in traveling and exploring other places. So now you have spent a lot of time in North Carolina, uh, both at UNC and now at Cape Fear Valley Medical Center. So if I was to come visit North Carolina, what's the one thing that I would need to check out to see, to do, to eat that the average tourist might miss? I think it would be a very North Carolina thing. And I'm actually the wrong person to ask because <laughs> where I live, where I live in North Carolina, I've lived for a long time. If you are from North Carolina, people will say, oh, that's cool. Tell me about it. 
if you're from Chile, you're from Japan, you're from Germany, people go like, yeah, you and everybody else. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm probably the, the wrong person to ask. But North Carolina is very diverse. And I think what's really unique about North Carolina is that we have both the mountains and the ocean. And yeah. so it's a, it's a great place to live and to uh, visit. It's it, We don't have really a big city. You have to come for either the ocean or the mountains. You come to North Carolina. I would recommend people to go do a waterfall tour in North Carolina. You can drive around and see over a hundred waterfalls within a day. It is waterfall country. So if you go to the mountains. Me too. I love waterfalls. I've been uh, a couple of times to North Carolina. I visited Asheville. Mm-hmm. so beautiful so beautiful yes. the nature there is so amazing so yep but waterfalls i'm definitely gonna <laughs> i love waterfalls so i'm definitely gonna explore waterfalls in north carolina yeah yep, for sure very close to Asheville's dupont state park is one of the best ones to see some amazing waterfalls and you can go in with your feet and Oh. And they actually also have some sliding rocks. So the smaller waterfalls and, and they're smooth. So you can go and slide down them. Which Natural is water fun. slide. I love it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so congratulations on your recent election as the ethics committee chair. Thank you. This is so amazing. I was so excited to hear that. What are you looking forward to in this role? So I have a lot of experience now of being the HRPP director and IAB director, compliance, you know, conflict of interest, all this HIPAA, (laughs) all those kind of things. And what I've learned in those positions that really ethics uh, touches on everything we do, but we often don't think it does, but it does. And there are ways to uh, make people aware of it, but also to tell people, listen, ethics is about doing the right thing when nobody's watching. There are rules that you have to follow for sure, but most of those are made not because I expect you to behave badly, but just so that we prevent bad things from happening. And so I don't want people to see me as the new sheriff in town, which often they then (laughs) see you, right? You need to hold people accountable. But I I see it more as as a a role where you interact with people and say, how does ethics align with you? You know, with what you're doing. For example, Jason and I are very active on social media. There's a big ethics part in that, right? Absolutely. Yes. People doing research, you know, with companies, there's an ethics part of that. You interacting with patients in your clinic, there's an ethics part of that. And yeah, I would just like to make it less of a cringy topic and more something that people understand. It's, It's okay. We can, we just, we have these rules to protect us to protect the patients protect our institutions but it doesn't mean that you know we think you are going to do anything bad (laughs) you know they're just sort of there and they protect us and in the end it's it's good that we have that protection for sure for sure you can see your role as being sort of coaching people Mm -hmm. for their protection exactly yes yep okay We obviously are going to be spending our time today talking a lot about functional abdominal pain and behavioral strategies to help manage that. But before we get started with that, I just want to know, how did you develop your interest in functional abdominal pain? Like within health psychology, you know, why why functional abdominal pain? This goes a really long way back (laughs) to when I did my PhD. I did my PhD in health psychology in the Netherlands. And I worked with a mentor who was interested in adults who are homesick. So think about people moving, immigrants, refugees, 
there's a lot of homesickness. Mm -hmm. And how do you deal with that? And there was some literature in kids, but there wasn't really in adults. So that became my PhD topic. A lot of people, when they're homesick, they have physical symptoms. Mm -hmm. It's even common for people to get fever, for example, right? Like you just, you're so stressed out, you get susceptible to things that you know, your immune system isn't working as well, etc. But the two most common ones were headaches and stomach aches. Like those were the two wow. most common ones that adults would say they would have when they're homesick. And it just made me so interested in, gosh, there's something going on here. So I came to the United States for a postdoc in medical psychology, and I got introduced to Dr. Osman because my mentor had worked some with him and knew him. And so that's where it all started. He then referred me to Bill Whitehead, and that was it. <laughs> and, and when I started working with Bill Whitehead, he worked a little bit with Rona Levy on sort of this, you know, early life experiences, um, social learning. And I said, gosh, we have all this information about adults. Even back then, there was all this information for adults with irritable bowel syndrome, other functional gastrointestinal disorders, and but there was very little for kids. But what we did know was that about two-thirds of kids actually grow out of their abdominal pain. They get better. Mm -hmm. And I said, gosh, if we know that that's true... And we know that in adulthood, it doesn't really, I mean, this is a chronic disease. It doesn't disappear on you, right? Hopefully it gets better, but it doesn't disappear in you. Then we need to start with children. We need to go where yeah, kids are. Right. And so that's how I started in that area. I just focused on children because not too many people were. And so it was, a, it was a great choice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can relate to that homesickness thing because I'm originally from Jordan and my parents live there. So uh, I do sometimes get, I don't get as much abdominal pain, but I do sometimes get headaches yep. and uh, the homesickness of like, oh yeah, yeah. As you were talking, I was like, yes, that makes so much sense. So when we do see our patients in clinic and they tell us that they have pain and they said, well, I was told that this is in my head, but I know that there's something wrong. I am having that belly ache. How should we respond to this patient that has functional abdominal pain that's seriously having physical symptoms? pain symptoms. How do we talk to them about it? And can you take us through the relationship between the gut and the brain? Sure. That's a, I think that's probably the next hour. No, <laughs> it's, a long topic. it's a long topic. <laughs> Two parts. Two parts. Yes. No, I think the first thing you need to do, well, need to, the first, first thing I would recommend anybody would do is just to tell the parents and the kids that the pain is real. Because I think in our culture, we adhere to the biomedical model, right? In mm -hmm. general, not as Maybe like me as a psychologist or, you know, most pediatric gastroenterologists, maybe not. But I think generally in our culture, we adhere to the biomedical model. And that means if there's nothing biologically wrong with you, it must be in your mind. It's mm -hmm. a dualism, right? It's either your body or your mind. And so when they come in and they have abdominal pain, which clearly is a physiological symptom, you're going to say, well, there's nothing biologically wrong with you. That means the child either is faking it right mm -hmm. you don't believe mm -hmm. it right. or the child's crazy and mom or dad will say listen i know that that's not true for my child mm -hmm. hence you haven't done your job mm -hmm. by finding out what really is wrong with my child and i think our first job with those children and unfortunately it takes a little bit extra time and we don't have much time you know nowadays but it's just 
to tell them about a brain-gut interaction. The main question I always say people should answer is, why can my child be in this much pain when nothing is wrong with them? Right. right? That's right. what parents want to know. And that's not hard to explain. I mean, we have all these metaphors that we can use explaining basically the concept of visceral hypersensitivity. And not all kids will have visceral hypersensitivity, but in the end, it doesn't matter if they do or do not. It's, it's a way to understand how this can happen. Mm-hmm. So if we have this brain-gut interaction, that goes wrong you know you have your nervous for some reasons and we don't know why could be that you had an infection a food you know some some food that you ate or it might be stress it might be something else that happened to you a surgery in the past it could be all kinds of things but at some point your nervous system became overreactive to normal symptoms and i often tell people when I talk about my research who are outside of our field, I said, listen, when you eat a really big meal, like at Thanksgiving, that feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? They're like, yeah. Like that's how a patient with functional abdominal pain will feel every single mm-hmm. day. Because they eat a meal and instead of your brain going, yeah, of course your stomach is doing all these things. You just ate a meal. Stop sending me signals. Now your brain is going, wait, wait, what? What? No, send me oh. more. That might be, ooh, no, listen, listen. Yeah. Yeah. And so people relate to that kind mm-hmm. of ideas. And there's multiple other metaphors to sort of explain it. But I think it's really important for people to know why. Because what is the first reaction you will do when you are in pain? Let's say you rolled your ankle, for example. What's the first thing you do? It's rest. Yeah. Yeah, you want to lay down. Exactly. So if you have abdominal pain, the first thing you do, it's pain. You got to remove yourself from Mm -hmm. whatever is causing the pain. So stop eating, mm-hmm. which a lot of our patients do. Yeah. Rest, yeah. you know. So yeah. and and those are actually the opposite things of what you mm-hmm. should be doing when you have abdominal pain. So you have to explain to parents: listen, yes, rest is good for pain yeah. when the pain is when you don't want to damage, you know, your ankle further when you've rolled it. But in this case, rest isn't good because your brain is sort of tricking, you know, and you're good in your brain. That interaction is sort of a little broken. It's a, it's too sensitive, and so you can forget it. You can distract your child so that they forget about it and then they get to do all the things that otherwise they wouldn't do if they would be laying down on the sofa right and so and that increases the quality of life of your child and that then in turn can actually reduce some of the pain they might be having Will it cure the pain? No, it won't cure the pain, right? right? It won't just go magically go away. And we just unfortunately don't have very good tools right now where I could say, take this pill or do this treatment and your visceral hypersensitivity will now be normalized. We're not very good at that yet, right? We, we So we have things to make you more comfortable to be able to lead a fuller life so that you, so that this won't be as impactful as it was before. But it's really important for, for parents to understand that first part, that it's a brain-gut interaction disconnect. And that's right. what's causing the pain. So the pain is not, we often say in kindly behavioral therapy, we say hurt doesn't equal harm. Mm-hmm. It's a really important concept for them to learn because in our minds i do this too when i something hurts i go like oh my goodness i'm sick <laughs> right? yeah, something is going yeah. on my throat hurts it must be right and and no maybe it was just a little a little something that you know a little allergy or whatever it's okay i have to live with that there's it's not dangerous i can keep on doing things when i my throat hurts because of an allergy and it's a sort of similar you have yeah. to 
I like the analogy of if you eat a big Thanksgiving dinner, your stomach starts hurting because a lot, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Exactly.、Uh, I also like the kind of rolling your ankle or spraining your ankle.、Uh, I kind of use that a lot and say, you know, when somebody sprains their ankle, they have to go through the physical therapy. Sometimes that's painful. We give them medicines to help kind of with that pain. That's something similar to what your gut is kind of going through. I think a lot of parents can relate to having headaches. So I said, people, When they have headaches, the MRI is normal, their brains are normal, but the pain is there. That's the same thing. Because when parents don't,、uh, they say, okay, well, is my Is my kid kind of faking the pain? And I'm like, no, no, you have headaches and you know what the stress of your or what the、uh, triggers of your headaches are. Sometimes it's stress, sometimes it's not sleeping. You need to know what the triggers of the belly aches are. So I think a lot of parents relate to the headache analogy as well. Yeah, absolutely true. And I, and I wish there was one wish I could make <laughs> related to abdominal pain is that we would take away the idea that a lot of adults have is that if a child is in pain and it's not clear. Why, right?、Yeah. Okay, they,、uh, you busted your knee. Sure, I can see that. But if they're complaining about headaches and stomach aches, particularly, that they're faking it. Yes, it's yes, unfortunate yes. that that's what we think. I always、yeah. go like, believe the child first, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the, so important to believe them、yeah. because the chances that they've been using that to actually try to truly get out of things, maliciously sort of get out of things, it's relatively is, small, right? It's very small.、Yeah. I mean, yes, they might. Try to avoid a difficult test, but they're not trying to avoid it because they just, I don't care about school. I just don't want to take this test. So, you know, no, yeah, they're truly, genuinely very stressed out. That makes them maybe have their belly aches get worse and then they don't want to go to school. It's not that they want to avoid the test, it's, it's、yeah. sort of a test anxiety, increasing、mm-hmm. belly ache, and then we're not going to school. So it's a, it's a different mindset to think about it, but I really wish. Fewer people would automatically jump to kids are faking yeah. pain. Yeah. No, I think there's a couple of really good points there. The one thing about, I won't say normalizing, but putting the child's degree of disability or dysfunction in appropriate context. Because I often will tell families, and, and this may be your experience too, and, and yours too, tomorrow, but. I always say, you know what, the, the fact that your child is so unwell that they can't go to school or they're spending their days curled up on the couch, that doesn't mean it is not a functional gastrointestinal disorder. In fact, of all of the kids we see in this GI clinic, those are the kids that are the most dysfunctional in terms of their engagement and following through with their regular life. We've got kids with Crohn's disease who are at hockey practice and kids with celiac disease who are, you know, out and doing other things. And it's the kids, unfortunately, with functional GI disorders. That are the most impacted. So, trying to break that association between severity of symptoms and the belief that there must be something organic to explain it. And then I think the other part is that using analogies to help people understand. The one that I often will use is of a fire alarm,、mm-hmm. like a smoke alarm in the house. And it's supposed to go off when there's a fire, but sometimes it goes off when you burn the toast in the toaster. But it still sounds the same, and it's still, the alarm is still going off, and it's the same with pain. Absolutely. That, that's a really good one. We often use a car alarm as well. Yeah. yeah. The fly that would surround your car. car. It actually made me think of something that we often hear as well is that the parents say, listen, my child truly, genuinely is in a lot of pain because my child has a really high pain threshold, right? right? They do really, they, they're so good at coping with pain. And of course, we know that these kids don't, right? Not the coping part, but the, but the pain threshold part. But this is how I interpret. 
interpret this when parents are telling this to me. So, and it comes out of my own experience. I'm really bad at recognizing pain, terribly bad. I'll go do dental work and my dentist gets nervous for doing it without painkillers. He gets nervous and I'll be like, eh, and I'll feel it. It's fine. Like he's like, I'm almost at your nerve. When I actually get into, so people would say like, oh my gosh, you're so amazing dealing with pain. No, I don't feel it. I feel it, but it doesn't register as pain for me. Mm -hmm. When I do get something painful, I'm the worst because I just go, what is this? I don't know what to do. And this is what parents are trying to tell you. Listen, we go through all of this pain all the time and are coping so fantastically with it, right? Because we have to. Because if we come to you with every single pain episode, we're in your office all the time. Yeah, it's true. And, and so now we come because it gets to the point where we even cannot cope with it anymore. And I tell people, listen, this is about these people do have, you know, coping mechanisms where I have none <laughs> when I'm in pain because I tend to not feel it. Right. So it's a it's a different mindset to think about when people come in your office and tell you that because it's really easy to start rolling your eyes when they tell you that because you go like, yeah, no, of course not. <laughs> you know, and, and it, but when you think when you put it in that different perspective, that makes it easier to sort of go like, okay, we I can work with this. Yeah. You know, I think that I think that raises really important points because we were going to ask you about the those concepts of pain perception and pain coping. And I think you've just kind of described that. So when you are speaking to an adolescent, it's not always an adolescent, but it's often an adolescent who has been dealing with functional abdominal pain in the family, how how do you parse that apart in a given situation? What's the bigger player? It's really hard to parse them out because they almost come automatically right it's 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 sort of an automatic process and if i would ask you oh jason how did you perceive that versus how did you cope with that you're probably going to have to think about that because it's such an automatic thing that will happen right so if you think about pain as a stressor a stressor happens to you let's say you're in the car and you're late and there's traffic you're stressed out then immediately we make an appraisal. Can I deal with the situation? Well, you might be able to go on a side road and circumvent traffic and then your stress will go down. If you can't deal with it, then you're going to be stressed in the car and the whole time going like, I'll be late, I'll be late, I'll be late. So, But that's so automatic that you don't really think about, did I perceive this? Well, there was a stressor and then I made an appraisal and that then either cost stress a stress reaction in me yes or no so that it's so automatic it's really hard to sort of take it apart and when we do a psychologist when we talk about abdominal pain with teens or, or kids we do talk about stress but it's actually not the main thing that we're focusing on we do tell them listen pain itself is stressful and it's good to reduce stress and here are some strategies by which you can do, reduce stress but it's not the main thing it's not the thing that we really think is very important so we we talk about coping but coping in a very different way of like here are when you have abdominal pain do you think there's hurt versus harm and then if you do do you have certain coping mechanisms right do you then say like i need to go lay down and let's change that behavior replace them with other behaviors replace the cognitions with other cognitions but i don't get into like when there's stress and then here's your coping Mm -hmm. you know it's Mm -hmm. a sort of go like what what is happening what are what are the typical cognitions you have what are the typical behaviors you have and then try to replace those with more helpful behaviors and here's where the parent story comes in as well, because I do a lot of research with parents and how to help parents be better managers of their kids' abdominal pain. 
And we want parents to almost pay less attention to the pain instead of more. But parents are worried, right? So they yeah. want to know. But it's in the end not good for anybody. But if I just say, let, just ignore your child, distract them, just pretend like the pain isn't there, parents will tell us, no, that doesn't make me a good parent. I need to be a good parent. I need to show empathy and sympathy for my child. So even if they can see my child does better when I distract them, they don't want to distract them because it makes them feel like they're not a good parent. Right. Right. So what we do is we actually exchange what we call these illness behaviors, right? The reinforcement of the illness behaviors. It sounds like so bad, like parents are doing something bad or not, or being good parents, right? They're taking care of the children. Yeah. But they're unfortunately reinforcing a behavior that doesn't make the pain better. Right. So then we want to replace them with what we call wellness behaviors. Mm -hmm. So take your attention away from the pain and focus your attention on the behaviors that your child is doing. Like, hey, Johnny, you went to soccer practice even though you had abdominal pain. That's amazing, right? And you oh, focus yeah. on the wellness behavior instead of focus on the Focus on the positives, yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's really important because otherwise people won't go there. They'll say, no, I want to I show sympathy and empathy for my kids when they're in pain. It's important for me as a parent. I want to have a relationship with them when they're you know, adults and not be like, oh, my parents just ignored me all the time. <laughs> so it's, it's really, sometimes it's just these little nuances how you introduce things to people that make them accept it or not. And it's really about, I think more about our thinking being wrong, right? And right. then us putting that on the parents or on the kids and they're saying, hold on, no, 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 no. And they're totally right. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously there's a lot of influences in pain perception and pain coping. And uh, one of them you mentioned was parents kind of adaptation or coping to the child's pain. The other thing is social media. So how does social media influence pain uh, perception or development of functional abdominal pain? And what is your guidance to the patients and the parents on social media? Obviously, you're on social media and you have a lot of followers. So you probably have a lot of kind of good interactions on social media, but also the not so good interaction. So what is your advice to sure. patients and parents and probably medical health providers that might get functional abdominal pain <laughs> from either being on social media or thinking about being on social media? So social media can be amazing and then it can also be the worst thing that ever happened to you, right? It almost yeah. seems like it's either one of the two. Now think about a typical teen, right? They're on social media and they're usually there because they're taking pictures, they're comparing each other on social media. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of sort of this FOMO and, and this unrealistic world that's created by filters and, you know, your looks and things like that. And that could be very, very stressful for teens. So we know that this can have a bad effect on them. But we also know that in general, being on your screen or being on social media is not necessarily bad for you because people just think, oh, it's the amount of time they're on. They're on eight hours a day. That's bad for them. No, some people are very active on social media, right? So if you're, if you're doing things like we know, for example, boys who play video games have a lot of screen time they're on their phones playing video games they actually don't have increases in anxiety and depression. 
So it's all about what you do mm -hmm. on social media. Yeah. People right. who are passive and looking at their friends, doing fun things, mm -hmm. looking beautiful, you know, <laughs> whatever, being thin, having great teeth, whatever yeah. it is, that is stressful and that raises that level of anxiety and depression. So that's sort of in general, talking about all teens, whether they have abdominal pain or not. Now, the advantage of social media is that it can put you in contact with a group of people that otherwise you wouldn't meet or you wouldn't necessarily talk about it. So think about abdominal pain, particularly if you also have bowel symptoms with it. It's not something you're going to easily talk to your friends about. Right. There's a stigma about talking about, you know, poop. <laughs> yeah, poop and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just not what you want to do. So now you can find on social media a like-minded group of people mm -hmm get support from them. And then there's all these organizations like patient organizations, physicians, a lot of advocates who will share information about the disease so you can, or the disorder so you can actually know a lot more. Let's say you're in an area where there's not a specialist in this, right? You can learn a lot from social media. So that's a plus. However, and here's the big caveat. At UNC, probably about 10 years ago, we, we, did, we were doing a meditation trial um, that's it's been published now. I wasn't actually involved, but the group I was working with was doing it. So I sort of got to learn about it in our meetings. And at some point they said, listen, we really need to start a social support group for adults with IBS. This will be great because, again, they don't you don't talk about it, yeah. so it's hard to meet somebody else. And then to say, gosh, there are people who have the same things. Let's share. How do you do this? How do you do that? Right? So right. we started this group, and we were measuring how people were doing. And we had to stop the group. People got worse oh, in wow. these groups instead of better. It's interesting. And there's something about when you get people together, I think particularly when we have things that we call, quote-unquote, medically unexplained, right, that that they might be feeding off of each mm. other, getting more like, oh, but but have you been tested for this disease? Because my aunt had this. And have you been doing that? Yeah. Oh, your doctors, oh, tell your doctor this. And, mm. and it gets into this negative loop instead of actually being helpful. And that's where when I say like, oh, it's great to reach out to people because there's this support group. It could also be that because you yeah. could get into that loop. So it's a really nuanced thing with social media can be amazing and then it cannot be so amazing but what i see on social media is that there are a lot of advocates out there for ibs abdominal pain you know other dgbis and there are very few patients who actually interact with you the times that a mom has contacted me on social media I didn't even give you one example. <laughs> Maybe it happened once or twice and I forgot about it. But on email, that happens a lot where people reach out to me and say like, hey, I found you, you're an expert, can I talk to you? But it doesn't happen on social media. And I think it's something about that stigma of doing that in a, in a very open place, right? So if you yeah. interact with me on Twitter, that's for everybody to see. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a stigma against people who are like, nobody knows what I have, they mm -hmm. think I'm crazy. And then in addition, this poop stigma and we're done people don't want to talk about this on social media i think so it's a very nuanced thing and therefore it's really hard to give people advice but i think social media is here to stay and we need to find ways to positively interact with it and to teach people so if you're a healthcare provider or another advocate on social media we need to really teach people how to work with the potential negative effects of social media because they can be the first time i said something about vaccinations in kids 
I woke up to a lot of really negative <laughs> tweets. And yeah. the first time that happens, it's really impactful. I mean, yeah. it's very it's stressful. You, you you have this tendency of to tell people no, and you get called all kinds of really bad names. And now I know to just ignore it because yeah. if I shut it down immediately, it stops. If I interact with these people, mm-hmm. it gets bigger mm-hmm. and bigger and bigger, and the problem becomes bigger. Yeah. And so there is a little bit, I think just about like knowing what to do when you start doing it. Mm. In GI, there's probably not that much in terms of negative reactions at this moment. It could, you know, at some point it might be that there's something in GI that would really inflame people. But right now I think the trolls and all the people just are out there to say negative stuff and be after people are mostly vaccinations or psychiatric diseases at this point. Those are the really big ones, but it can change at any point. It's true. That's true. You talked a bit about guidance for healthcare professionals, providers, and advice around social media. When you're talking to adolescents and their parents, do you bring up social media and the pros and cons? Or do you ask about their use of social media and how they feel when they use social media? Like, is that part of your discussions? For me, it's usually not because when I'm doing therapy, it's very, it's usually within a research study and then we're very regulated this is what you can talk about and nothing outside of that i think if you talk more to psychologists and clinicians who take care of teens you would probably hear that more because it can be a big stressor you know and so it's a good thing to ask about but i think in general as parents we have to get away from screens or social media are always bad Mm -hmm. right i mean currently kids do virtual school virtual health appointments i mean screens are here to stay we can't say they're always bad but to talk about your children about what they're doing online and then talk about only being passive online and if you for example you see studies on twitter which is not the main media that kids are on or teens are on but it's the content creators which is only about 20 percent or so the people on twitter are content creators and if your content creator actually is associated with better mental health than if you are a passive observer. So if your children are on social media, make sure that they're, you know, they, they do something active on there in addition to maybe doing some passive things because all of us will do that. That would be my biggest advice for, for people with teens. But that's in general. I don't think it's necessarily just related to abdominal pain. Right now we want to talk about specific therapies for functional abdominal pain and specifically about behavioral intervention or behavioral therapies for functional abdominal pain. And um, majority, if not all, gastroenterologists, pediatrics and adults see patients with functional abdominal pain. Some have access to uh, amazing psychologists like yourself, but others don't have access to a psychologist or the referral takes several months to get in to see a psychologist. So what are your kind of main points that you would like to tell gastroenterologists that have a 30-minute visit to counsel or to talk to patients and families about functional abdominal pain? Yeah, I think I think the main thing is what we already talked about, yeah. that, that education around how can I have this much pain. Yeah. Now, in addition, I, I am on a mission <laughs> to, to get pediatric gastroenterologists and, and even adult gastroenterologists to understand it's not anxiety. Mm-hmm. If a child with functional abdominal pain will come to a psychologist who is in GI, they will not be treated for the anxiety. Mm-hmm. If they have a comorbid anxiety disorder, 
they should be sent to a person who will treat that. Mm -hmm. That is not what the GI psychologist would be focusing on. Now, some of them might do it because there's nobody else there and they'll do it. Right. But what we treat is GI-specific cognitions, emotions, behaviors, not anxiety in general. So I really want people to start understanding that it's not just anxiety, what people will think. Oh, I have this high-anxious family. Can you treat them for the anxiety? Mm -hmm. If they're high anxious, they belong with somebody else, right? That's a comorbid in addition to functional abdominal pain. Now, what do we treat? We do treat anxiety, but it's GI-specific anxiety. So this is a child who doesn't want to go, you know, on a long car ride because they want to have access to a toilet or, Mm. you know, doesn't want to go to the bathroom in school or, Mm. you know, these kind of things. Those are the things, those can be anxiety related. And then there's avoidance, because if you have anxiety, there's usually avoidance behavior, because if anxiety is up, you avoid what you're anxious about. It reduces the anxiety. So the two of them sort of go together. So we, we treat or we, we look at GI-specific anxiety. That does not mean that that child necessarily has general anxiety. So, for example, somebody who is catastrophizing in general, right, they might say, I got to be in school. That mean I will fail this class. That will mean I will not finish high school. Then that will mean I will not finish college. And that will mean I will be in the gutter for the rest of my life. And <laughs> That's it, right? And so that that's sort of going from 1B to I'm in the gutter. That's general catastrophizing. And that's general anxiety. And that's not what we treat. Mm-hmm. We treat I have pain, you know, it's pretty mild still, but I know it's going to get worse. And that's why I cannot go to dance recital. And that's what, you know, I'm going to have to stay home. And now, because it's going to be the worst ever. And so you went from a mild pain to it's going to be the worst ever. And now I can't participate in regular life. That's the thing that we treat. So so if you're referring patients, I would say don't refer to ones that you think have anxiety, right? Refer to ones who you think have avoidance behavior. So disability is a good way to to measure if they have avoidance behavior. And if they're very anxious about their pain, sure, that's a very good, but that's harder to know or assess in the limited time that you have. So avoidance behaviors or the disability is a really good measure Mm. of that. And those are probably the people who belong with a psychologist. Yeah, I think that's a a good point to bring up is sort of that anticipatory anxiety or, or, you know, kids that are not generally anxious, but have the first inklings of their pain starting or their nausea starting. And then it spirals from there because they don't want it to be one of those days again. Um, Sort of saying that this is a thing, you know, that this is uh, something that our our teens and kids with this problem go through and it doesn't mean that they have anxiety it's perfectly normal to not want this bad thing to be happening to you again and kind of go Absolutely. through the mental spiral that goes along with that yeah and and one thing i also would like physicians to keep in the back of their mind is that when you send a child to a psychologist you don't send them for a particular thing psychologists will figure that out right i'm not going to tell you which medications to use that's That's why i'm sending them to you yeah but what sometimes happens is that we've all heard about pain catastrophizing right Mm -hmm. it's a big concept it's not just a functional abdominal pain it's all chronic pain and there's this big backlash right now on social media amongst others of chronic pain patients not so much with gi but chronic pain patients who say my doctor tells me i'm catastrophizing and i should reduce it and people get very upset about that Mm -hmm. because it's it's 
it's not introduced in a context where people are going to understand what it is. Right. So these physicians are trying to be helpful. I don't have a psychologist. So I'm going to tell you, listen, you are catastrophizing, reduced to catastrophizing. And that's sort of telling somebody, you're upset, be less upset. Oh, like, yeah. In the world mm. of upset, that does never happen. <laughs> it's <laughs> like no. throwing uh, more <laughs> gasoline on the fire. Exactly. <laughs> I wasn't upset before I came yeah. into this appointment, but now I am. Now we have, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you're upset, why don't you calm down? <laughs> yes, it's sort of similar. And I know yeah. we're trying to do it to be helpful yeah. and because there isn't a psychologist, but some things I think you have to just leave for that. And yes, then that means you might observe it and you can't help because there's nobody there but it's almost worse if you put more as you said gasoline on the fire yeah. can i can i ask you so you, a little bit earlier you you brought up the term cognitive behavioral therapy or cbt i know it's one of the techniques that can be used to help teens and kids with this problem can you talk a little bit about you know just sort of broadly what is cbt like what what are the sort of components and for that situation that you just mentioned about the doc in their office who doesn't have access to a psychologist or there isn't a psychologist close by are there any apps or books or websites that that you might recommend that kids or teens can access yeah, so cognitive behavioral therapy is a combination of cognitive therapy, so we're changing how you think, and then behavioral therapy, so changing how you think. And it's based on that what we think influences how we feel and behave, how we behave influences how we feel and think, and how we feel influences how we behave and think. So, so, so sort of this three-prong, these are all related to each other. Cognitive behavioral therapy is never the same. We have a large toolbox of things that we can use. And so it's really nice because we can personalize it to every single patient, every single disorder, you know. And I, I often tell people, listen, it's every single therapist has their favorite ways to do things. So mm -hmm. it will also really vary by therapist. It's also a time-limited therapy. So it's not like psychotherapy or counseling where you can be with somebody for 10 years. It's never going to happen. Right? I think it, in adults, we say about 12 sessions in kids, it's often even less than that. So it's really truly teaching people skills to then use, you know, when they're out in real life and go like, I, I know what to do now when I have pain. Cognitive behavioral therapy includes a lot of things that we know outside of cognitive behavioral therapy. So think, for example, about guided imagery. It's one of the tools in the toolbox of a cognitive behavioral therapist to use. Now, if you don't have access, it's actually pretty difficult to deliver cognitive behavioral therapy. And a child needs to be verbal enough and, you know, sort of be able to, you know, do things that where we go, we can deal with the cognitive part because that's the hard part. The behavioral part is usually simpler. Because much of the behavioral part is about relaxation and you can do that as young as, you know, age two or three. It's, it, we can do that. And there's certain behavioral things that are harder to do, but, you know, these are the, the easier things to do. And so I would say if, because it's so difficult to deliver it, you have to have the right therapist, then you have to send them to a therapist who knows guts direct to cognitive behavioral therapy. Because otherwise, if you would send them in your community, oh, I found a psychologist, let's send them there. Psychologist doesn't know anything about the gut or gut-related symptoms or how that works. They go like, oh, the child looks a little bit anxious. Let me treat them for the anxiety. Great, you know, that can help, but it doesn't help their gut issue. Right. And so then the family will come back and you say, let's try the psychologist and say, been there, done that, no thank you. Right? Yeah, they yeah really true. Yeah. Receive that they should be. But if people really truly are out like I, I want it I, I can't have anything are there apps out there 
There are certain apps, you know, now for adults that are approved. And if you have older teens, they can do that. You know, I think 16 and up or so are totally fine to go to the adult world. But you don't really have that much for children. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, for, for abdominal pain, there's one app that's developed by Tanya Palermo. It's for chronic pain in general, and that's kind of behavioral therapy. So you could look that up, and I believe it's even free. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> but if, it's, <laughs> if it's not, it's not going to be expensive. But there is hypnosis, you know, which is in children the same as guided imagery. It's not, in adults, it's a little bit different. But in children, they're so used to go, mm-hmm. you know, imaginary world. Yeah. They get in that trance-like state almost immediately. So if you can find an app or somebody out in your community who can do guided imagery hypnosis and it's focused on abdominal pain, like that would be ideal. But even if it's not, that would be the first part I would start okay. because it's easy, it's accessible, there are a gazillion out there you can find, you know. And I know Mark Benningas group is, you know, now having mm-hmm. it online. And I know they're working on an English version and a Spanish version. And so mm. that would be fantastic because people can just go and, you know, go on their website. And it's not, again, not expensive. So it's very cost effective. I think almost anybody can pay for it. So that will be a really nice thing for us to have available. But I would steer people that way instead of the kind of behavioral therapy way, because it is so hard to do some of these things. It's so hard if you are truly convinced that that something's wrong with your child to buy into the hurt doesn't equal harm concept Mm -hmm. and some other behaviors or other things that are happening. It is it's difficult to do. You need some support. So I would, I would steer people towards more the guided imagery, hypnosis apps. Regular relaxation apps might help, but probably not too much. But they can be a little bit helpful, especially if you have you know a child that's very stressed out and things like that. Sure. So a follow-up question on hypnosis. And uh, you actually had a recent article published in uh, Washington Post about hypnosis titled Hypnosis is Effective for Kids with IBS. Can you tell us a little bit more about what hypnosis is? Can you tell us how does it work? And you mentioned that it's really good for the younger population. So can you just kind of explain to us really what it is and how it works? Yeah, so hypnosis, we often think about and we've been fed this by media and all kinds of stage hypnotherapists, but we often think hypnosis is a very special state that nobody has ever experienced But it's actually a very common thing we do all the time. So I often ask people, have you ever driven home? And you're thinking about something you need to do at work or whatever. And all of a sudden you're in your driveway and you go, where did the 10 minutes of my drive go? That's that's a trance-like state. That's hypnosis. You're doing self-hypnosis. If you ever read a book or been part of a movie and somebody says like, hey, come on, let's go, let's go. And you didn't hear them because you were so involved in that story. And you almost felt like you were a part of it. That's hypnosis. My five-year-old, six-year-old niece is always like that. <laughs> yeah. Some people are really good at it. Yes. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> and kids particularly. Tap her multiple times and then suddenly she's like snaps out of it and she's yep. like in her own world. Yep. So what hypnosis is, is it's a, people often think it's like the super relaxation, almost sleep. And it's the exact opposite of yeah. that. It's a hyper focus on one thing where you forget the rest around you. And for some reason that we don't really understand very well why, when you do that, you're very open to suggestions. 
So we are open to suggestions because we have these mirror neurons in our brain. Like if I see you, you know, hurt your elbow, I go like, ouch. You know, I feel it in my own Uh, elbow, right? Even though I didn't do anything. A good example is imagining that you're holding a really juicy and very vibrant yellow lemon in your hand, you know, and now you're going to cut it open. The juices come out and you take a little piece and you put it in your mouth. Most people start salivating. Uh, I did right now. (laughs) That's the power of suggestion. Yeah. Hundreds of listeners are drooling. (laughs) So, So that power of suggestion becomes even bigger when you're in this trance-like state. Why? We don't know, but that's what happens. So we can give you certain suggestions to improve how your body feels during hypnosis, where usually outside of hypnosis, you go like, yeah, right. Uh -uh." (laughs) You know, your brain somehow goes, "Mm, we're not doing this. But during hypnosis, you are. So I used to um, hypnotize the kids at middle school, my son's middle school. They were amazing for allowing me, but they did. And I would hypnotize them to not be able to open their eyes. And it's so funny when somebody does that to you, you cannot open your eyes and you go, how in the world can I not open my eyes? <laughs> but that suggestion is so powerful that your brain during that trans state accepts that. And so we can use that not just for the fun I just said, right? Mm-hmm. But, but for something actually therapeutically. Now there is data from... It's not white literature yet, but there is some data uh, from fMRI studies showing that if you afflict pain during hypnosis with people and you tell them, you know, during hypnosis to reduce their pain, that the sensory areas of your brain still are totally working fine. You're feeling it, but somehow the cognitive emotional reaction to it changes. So the amygdala, you know, and other areas sort of are dialed down. They sort of go like, yeah, we're not reacting. So it's It's like I feel it, but it's not painful anymore. And that's what hypnosis probably is doing. It's it's really hard to study these things, but that's what we find. There's been some studies in adults with fMRI as well that show that that it does work on those, mostly the emotional parts of that pain matrix that we have in our brain. And it's really fascinating, but we just, we have some good evidence that it's working. So the hypnosis is similar to like telling somebody to go into like the space. And is that kind of what hypnosis is? Is like you get them into a certain space by guiding them into getting to that? Yes. Meditation very similar. You get into that trance-like state where you forget other things, right? What's hard about meditation is to get there. Yeah. And it's really hard to shut down all of those other thoughts that are going around in your head. Hypnosis helps you doing that. You get there sooner because people have developed techniques to get you there more easily. Now, there is about 15 to 25% or so of the population who will never be able to do this. So there are definitely people who will say, I do not recognize this and they're not hypnotizable. There's about 15 or so 20% of the population who's highly hypnotizable. Wow. You have to do almost nothing and they can go into trance like say maybe wow. your niece because she's good yeah. at it. <laughs> I wonder if hypnosis is good for education as well. Mm-hmm. Like you can hypnotize somebody and then just kind of get them some information, give them a lecture, and then they get out of that hypnosis and they're like, whoa, I learned everything. Now I can take a test. Maybe. Yeah. It could be. It definitely will help with attention, right? Because you, when you have to like focus 80, on something, yeah. yeah, and it's really hard to focus and go, oh, this text is boring and I have to read it five times and it doesn't really stick. But if you're very focused, if you're engaged in a 
book that's just like wow the best story ever you have no problem remembering what happens it's yeah, naturally so true. maybe i so i don't know that research. you've just given hope to all of the fellows at home <laughs> prepping for the board exams we'll uh, hypnotize them all <laughs> sure <laughs> give them all the prep questions to answer there you go, there you go. or give them a lecture <laughs> Send your thanks to Dr. Van Tilburg. So we've talked a little bit about cognitive behavioral therapy and particularly, you know, gut-directed cognitive behavioral therapy. We talked a little bit about hypnosis. Are there other strategies, other types of behavioral therapy that can be helpful in functional abdominal pain um, that have some evidence to support their use? The evidence is the hard part. We just, you know, even the hypnosis trials are very far and few in between and often not well controlled. Even the cognitive behavioral trials mm-hmm. often aren't very well controlled. So so the evidence is the hard part. But I know in clinical practice, people are using all kinds of other skills and find them to be helpful. So for abdominal pain and nausea, you can use something that's called acceptance and commitment therapy to sort of say, listen, you, I mean, it's more than this, but in a nutshell, you know, if I had to sort of give you one example, it's like if you have pain, you can get very upset about it and say it needs to disappear now and it needs to and I need to get it away and blah, blah. And of course, that's a spiral you get in that isn't very helpful. And if we can just get people to say, I sit here and I have pain and I accept the pain and I'm not no emotional reaction to it whatsoever, right? So it's sort of like I'm in a car and somebody is, you another car is yelling at me and you know doing all kinds of things and I can just, instead of getting like, stop it and getting engaging with that person, just going, being like, I'm okay. I have music on in my car. I'm good. There's this crazy person there, whatever. You know, <laughs> they will go away. Sort of similarly to that, if we can just accept being with the pain and sitting with the pain, that is really, really helpful. So that's where that acceptance part comes from. And again, I'm making it really simple, but it's very helpful. We know from studies in adults and also in kids with chronic pain that that's helpful. We don't really have evidence for functional abdominal pain, but I know clinically people use this a lot. Uh, Meditation, of course, can be helpful for some people. And again, we have evidence from adults, not in kids yet, but yes, there are definitely some newer things sort of on the horizon that people are developing. And then this new type of cognitive behavioral therapy that's called exposure therapy that we do have evidence for in children. And that's based on this, what I talked about before, the fear and avoidance, right? So if you, when somebody's really anxious, they're fearful of the fear. They're avoiding things because they don't want to have the fear. And so people get like, oh, I couldn't go up and talk to a stranger because they might think I'm terrible and this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And when you actually have them talk to the stranger, they go, oh, nothing really happened. They were nice to me, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so you you expose them to what they're afraid of, right? And this is what we often do with phobias. Like if people are afraid of snakes or spiders or things like that, flying, we slowly expose them to increasingly, you know, more fearful stimuli to sort of desensitize them, to sort of show them, I know you're very afraid, but if you do not avoid it, you will learn you do not have to be afraid. So that's sort of the newest kits on the block. And there's some evidence for that now from the Swedish group. So that's really exciting. And with abdominal pain, you do things like wearing very tight fitting clothes, for example, right? Because it's sort of that uncomfortable... Mimics, mimics the sens- yeah, sensations. Yeah, exactly. 
or having people eat things, foods that they're fearful of eating because they think they're mm-hmm. going to have abdominal pain. Well, a lot of times we don't, <laughs> right? It might be, but a lot of times we don't. It's not always we're going to react. So those are the kind of things going on longer trips if you're afraid to be or going to the bathroom at school, you know, all these yeah. kind of things that you're avoiding. Yeah. It is usually not because those are always going to induce your abdominal pain. You're afraid of the anxiety. It's going to, your fear of the fear is there. So exposure therapy. Is right. really and you talked one. about kind of avoidance. And a lot of patients want to avoid school because it triggers a lot of their functional abdominal pain symptoms. Some need to go to the bathroom a lot. And school, I found this very mind-boggling. Some schools allow you only three or four passes a year, a year oh to go to the bathroom. And I'm like, uh, I go to the bathroom probably a lot more when I'm at work. Yeah. Um, and a lot of kids with functional abdominal pain uh, have gas and they need to go to the bathroom not to poop, to release the gas. And Dr. Garza... <laughs> In his Naspigan um, lecture said, if you hold in the gas, you probably get bloated. So, and we tend to write notes for these patients. Yeah. What are your thoughts or what is the literature out there? Is there any literature out there about a physician writing a note, a school note for a patient that has functional abdominal pain for special accommodation? And is it is it something that we you encourage us to do or is it something that would kind of make the avoidance more or greater? Because some patients say, okay, I sometimes need to go to school late at 10 because I'm having all my functional abdominal pain symptoms in the morning. So are we providing service or disservice to these patients? Yeah, that that's a difficult one because school yeah. avoidance has multiple aspects to it. It's usually not just, I can't go to the bathroom at school. That's easily solved with the nose yeah. and, it, and it should be. Or even when kids get maybe a little stressed out or something's happening and you can just have a note that they can go to the nurse's station for about 10 minutes and then come back. Keeps them in school. Because in addition to what you're talking about, a lot of school nurses send kids home yeah, and they don't yeah. have to be sent home. Oh, I feel right. a little nauseous. Let's send you home. Right? It's right. not very helpful. But having them just like a little bit of time to collect themselves somewhere and come back into the classroom yeah. can be very helpful. So those notes are very helpful. It gets more tricky when you go into kids with bigger school avoidance issues. Mm-hmm. Kids who've been out for months, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. You A note won't help. They, they really truly need somebody to guide them to how do I bring them back to school. Mm-hmm. And here's where even a general psychologist would be very helpful because they deal with school avoidance all the time. They can get them back into school by working with how we're going to do this, right? Like what are all the things that we need to make sure that these kids get back into school? The morning one that you're talking about is so common and it's so hard, right. but it would be better to work out a plan where over time these kids do get to school. So that we don't say, let's give you a pass to always miss school. Because the problem is in that morning is going to get later, later, later yeah. before we know it. They're missing so much school, sure. right? So so it's okay to have a note in the beginning to sort of help them through so they don't have the additional stress of, oh, now they're going to be mad at me for being late. But only in the context of how do we get you to a place where you can go to school in the morning and on time. But yeah. again, that would probably need a little bit more help 
than what you can provide. And it might come from the school counselors or the school nurses. It doesn't really necessarily have to come from a psychologist in your clinic. But if you have one, they're probably happy to help with that. (laughs) But schools deal with this all the time too. So I think actually partnering with the school is a good thing. Now, of course, they're also particularly right now, you know, after pandemic, overworked, overburdened, and it's really difficult. Yeah. For sure. So it sounds like the school support letters, particularly for missing any part of the school day, is sort of best left to the context of a transition plan Mm -hmm. or a a bigger plan to to reintegrate into full attendance. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Ideally. I know the world is not ideal, but... (laughs) No, but that makes a lot of sense. So this has been a really great discussion around functional abdominal pain and behavioral approaches and how to sort of get our heads around how to explain this to families and help support our families through this. Before we wrap things up, as we're, we're getting towards the end of our discussion today, if we ask you to look back on your career so far, what would you say has been the most valuable advice that you've received? And, and what advice do you have for our listeners? Yeah, that's such a great question because I've received so much amazing <laughs> advice, right? But I, I tend to go to maybe some advice that isn't as common, you know, given to people. So one thing very early on in my career, I was a psychologist in a GI department studying chronic pain. And right there, there is three different sort of societies, worlds that I was belonging to, right? So back then, pretty much all psychologists were in their psychology world. So they have their psychology journals that, you know, you can publish in and their psychology conferences and, you know, everything psychology. Um, They might even go to a chronic pain conference, but nobody really was in the GI world. And I thought, gosh, if I want to really work on making more integrated care. I want to publish in GI journals. I want to know the MDs. I want to go to their conferences and things like that. And so when I came the first time to NASPIC, and I think there were maybe two other psychologists there for years, there was just nobody else there. But GI particularly was very welcoming to somebody like me. I previously been in endocrinology and they were just like why are you here go do your own thing in your own psychology thing right but GI has been really open and very well welcoming and after a while my peers were MDs not necessarily you know the psychology I often was just go be like don't you know the psychologist and I go I'm sorry I don't because yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to their conferences I'm not publishing in their papers and things like that so finding your tribe early on like I'm just saying now this is what I did and and right now this year it's not that many but before the pandemic we had over 20 psychologists you know going to an annual meeting that's amazing again it's amazing yeah, right it's amazing. That we have that much there are a lot of psychologists that are now on committees in NASPIC and yeah, before it was great. nobody on me and maybe and one of chair person. one of those and, <laughs> and I'll be, be the first psychologist on council yes. so you know like yeah. there's this truly sort of this development and so not that I was setting out to do that when I make this decision but but you 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 can go somewhere but what what's really important I think is just to see who is your tribe who do you want to hang out with and not necessarily go the direction everybody goes go the direction that makes sense 
for you. If that is where everybody goes, goes there, <laughs> go there, right? But really, truly think about it. And one way I got to even that conclusion that early on, I wouldn't have been that smart by myself that early on, is I was in a really great environment at UNC where we had people visiting all the time. The big people in our fields back then for for psychogastroenterology that was Lynn Walker right and she came mm-hmm. to visit and she was the chair of um, adolescent medicine I'm like mm-hmm. Lynn how or Dr Walker mm-hmm. how in the world <laughs> did you become the chair of a department that has MDs in them mostly like how did that happen and she gave me this great story. And then after that, every single person that came to it, it wasn't me telling them about my research and can you help me? Can you mentor me? No, it was, can I listen to your story? And you get amazing stories from people. How they got where they were, I guarantee you 99.9% of the time, it's not how you think people got to where they were. And it taught me so much about, huh, Lynn chose to be here. This person chose to be there. This person chose to be there. I need to choose. And I need to do this with a direction and with, you know, conviction and do it and not try to spread myself too thin. And so I learned a lesson from doing that. That's what I hope I sort of give away to people too, to really, if you have the opportunity to sit down with somebody, your institution has people come and visiting and say, hey, do you want to meet for 20 minutes? Don't be shy, but sit there and just let them talk. Tell me how you got where you are. It's it's phenomenal. You get so much good information. And yeah, and then you can take whichever route you want, yeah. right? You don't have to follow whatever anybody else did. I, yeah. I completely agree. You're you're preaching to the choir because that's part of what we do in this podcast. We listen to people's stories and, and you're you're so right. It, having a chance to hear how somebody ended up where they are because I think it's easy to envision you know these great leaders in our field as sort of emerging fully formed into their current roles and and of course that's not the case and a lot of people have very interesting paths through to where they've ended up so I think that's really great advice yeah pave your own path and listen to people's stories (laughs) yes exactly well you learned about my history and homesickness I mean yes that's you right it's true and I totally relate it to it so once again thank you very much for your time it was a pleasure talking to you any final words to our listeners oh it it was just an absolute pleasure to be here and I love this society and I love this field and I don't think I have really any parting words other than I wish everybody the best because our patients you know need the best and we can only do that when physicians other clinicians providers psychologists nurses doesn't matter who you are are the best right and so you're and the best is not necessarily the best in number of publications or your endoscopy skills but the best person you can be you're you know it's so much stress going on right now we're coming out of this pandemic everybody's a little bit stressed out so you know take care of yourself Mm -hmm. before you take care of anybody else that would be my advice for everybody Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you again. Well, that was a great conversation we had with Dr. Miranda Van Tilburg. I learned so much about the behavioral aspects of functional abdominal pain, and I hope our listeners did too. It was a great conversation. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person or more about the podcast 
Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there is a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspergan Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspergan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspergan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with the advances in the field. Thank you all for listening. Bye for now. Bye-bye.